Well, as I said last week, um, I can't talk about this subject in this series that we're in without just being deadly serious. Uh, so I, I already err on the side of seriousness. I know I need more levity in my life. I'm working on that. Some of you are praying for me about that. You haven't prayed enough. So uh, keep on praying. But meanwhile, <laughs> we're going to seriously talk about something this morning. Uh, let me preface it with this question. Do you follow God? And as I tried to explain last week, uh, when I ask that question, I'm not asking you, are you religious? I'm not asking you if you are moral. I'm asking, do you follow God? Being religious and being moral is relatively safe, benign, uh, kind of boring stuff. Following God is dangerous. It's risky. It's costly. It's hard. And there's not much chance that you'll engage in that. Unless, like a 16-year-old we just heard, somehow you've met Christ and He's gripped your heart about something and now it flames within you. Not much chance of anything happening along those lines unless God is at work in you in that kind of way. Do you follow Him? Last week we had a case study on that. We looked at the life of Abraham and we found out that Abraham began to follow God and was willing to do so even into unknown circumstances. Even into situations that looked absolutely impossible. And we closed that conversation with this question, will you? Will you follow him into unknown situations and into those experiences that look impossible? And we're going to continue that question, that invitation to you today. Uh, as we begin to unfold this, I want to pause and reflect for a moment on a clip that we're going to show you from a movie. I introduced this movie to you last week. It's called Courageous. It is going to be released and in theaters uh, September 30. Uh, it's a film that I'm very high on, and I do recommend that uh, you find a way to, to go and see this. But it basically is a story about some police officers who began to contend with God and what God's up to in them and around them and the courage that it's going to call for them. And these guys are acquainted with courage. That's their daily life, their daily work. But it's an altogether different kind of courage to begin to follow God. And one of the characters in the story is somebody that will be uh, endeared to your heart. You're looking at him there. His name's Javier. Uh, Javier is um, an immigrant to this country. He speaks English as a second language. It's kind of a fearsome thing for him to enter into our culture and begin to make a life and make a living for his family. Uh, he has a hard time being able to keep employment because these are pretty difficult economic times in which we live. And so he has to fight. Uh, for the capacity to be able to work and to do honest work because the jobs that he gets want him to compromise his values and his faith and he won't compromise. He has to fight for his family. He has to fight for his marriage. He is a fighter. 
And it takes courage. Take a look at this little scene out of his life. Carmen, should I have done this? Yes! Put it on for me. Right now? Right now! I want to see you in it! No, 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 no. Here, let me do it. Mira, Papi, se ve guapo! Papi, es suyo? Yes, this is Daddy suit. He'll wear to his ceremony next week. We'll all be wearing our very best. <laughs> strong faith, children that love you, and a wife that adores you. Stop it, Carmen. Don't make me cry in front of the children. I hope that last frame kind of freezes in your mind for a moment because that's what it looks like to be a rich man. We have a lot of other images in our culture today that says this is what rich is. That is a rich man. Children that love him, a faith that sustains him, a wife that adores him. And guys, you don't get that by being passive, by being laid back, by kind of letting life come to you, by just kind of hoping that, you know, things will work out for the best. You have to engage it. You have to fight it. You have to be in there risking it. Following God is not for the passive. It's not for the squeamish. It's not for the challenge averse. It's not for those that just love prosperity and want everything to go well and go smooth. Following God takes all there is in your life. We're going to engage another case study today. And this case study is going to help us to understand how to respond, how to engage some of the stuff that's going on in our lives today. You're looking at a family there headed up by Chuck Fromm and his wife, Stephanie. They live in San Juan Capistrano, California. And they made the news this past week. I wonder if you saw how they made the news. They made the news because they host a Bible study in their home. And it's illegal. They've been hosting this Bible study in their home since 1994. Every week, a group of people show up in their home. They have a Bible study. It's a quiet experience. Uh, It's a friendly experience. It's a loving kind of... It's not unlike the kinds of Bible studies we have in homes around here. And for whatever reasons... The city council in San Juan Capistrano uh, put an ordinance in place that you can't have assemblies of more than three people in your home without a permit. 
And if you do so, it's a $300 fine. So they had their weekly Bible study. Somebody came by and busted him, cited him, fined him for 300 bucks. Undeterred, he had his Bible study again the next week. They came back, fined him another 300 bucks, and called a session of the city council to raise that fine from 300 to 500 in case he did that again. Well, he did it again. Now, uh, let it be known that at the same time, nobody was being cited and fined for gathering together to watch Monday Night Football. Nobody was being cited and fined to gather together for their weekly poker night. Nobody was being cited and fined for the gathering of their book club. Just Bible studies. Unless you think that is so bizarre and exceptional, same thing goes on in San Diego, same thing goes on in Phoenix. Friends, we're living in a day where the cultural landscape is shifting to such an extent, we're going to see more of these kinds of things. And just to do something like gather with your friends to study the Bible in their home is going to begin to take a little courage. It's also been in the news recently where in North America, churches have been being censored as to what they can and cannot say in Sunday morning gatherings like this. Pastors having been arrested and incarcerated for addressing certain subjects in the Bible in the way the Bible describes them. It's hate speech. Uh, This past week, a student at a high school in Fort Worth, Texas, was suspended because the class was having a discussion. And in the discussion, one student expressed opinions and values that differed from this student who said, well, actually, I'm a Christian and I just think that position is wrong. That is all he said. Suspended for bullying. Friends, who are you going to be? Who are you going to follow? What kind of life are you going to live? What are you going to hand off to the next generation? These are deadly serious questions and issues. And our case study today will help us to decide whether we want to follow God in some fearsome conflicts or not. We're going to be looking at a guy by the name of Gideon. Now, uh, historically, this happened not too long after Moses had led uh, Hebrews out of Egypt. Joshua had led these Hebrews into the promised land in conquest. And uh, when they began to occupy the promised land, they did so by way of their tribes. You may recall that Israel was not so much a unified nation at this time, but it was kind of a confederation of 12 tribes who had come from the 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, just to the east of them were uh, some terrorizing people, Midianites and Amalekites. And here's what they used to do, particularly in this northern region between the tribes of Manasseh and um, Asher. They would wait until it was time for harvest, 
And then they would swoop in, the Bible says, like a swarm of locusts. And they would plunder all the harvest that the Hebrews had just brought out of the fields and take it all for themselves. And they would leave the Hebrews absolutely devastated and without any resource for their families, without any food for the months that were to come. And this is regular like clockwork. And um, at this time, God began to raise up various people that uh, we've come to call judges. Now, you have to kind of table the modern 21st century conception of a judge. This is not somebody that sat on a bench in a black robe who made decisions and handed down uh, uh, verdicts and things like that. A judge was more of a prophetic kind of individual who would speak for God into the culture and also uh, often was a military type person. Get in there and fight for what God was up to with his people. And uh, Gideon is one of the better, better known judges during this time. And uh, we're going to be introduced to him as we get into Judges chapter 6. So we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6 and 7. You want to find that in your Bible so you can read along with us. But uh, Gideon is not a likely candidate to be a judge. He is not a likely candidate for God to come upon and anoint and to use in a special fighting kind of way. And I just wonder how many other unlikely candidates we have in the room. See, I love Gideon for that fact because I'm an unlikely candidate. You're an unlikely candidate. When, uh, in fact, Gideon gets approached by an angel of the Lord with this whole prospect of him beginning to do a leading thing, he said, uh, what? I think you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> uh, don't you know? My family is like the least family in our tribe, and I'm like the least member of my family. You know, who are you talking to here? And the angel knew exactly to whom he was speaking. So if you have that found in your Bible now, let's look in Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites... The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hands of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You have not obeyed my voice. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. That's a place, not a woman. Which belonged to Joash, the Abzerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. 
and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Keep your Bible open. We'll look at some more verses here in a minute. Take note of the candidacy of Gideon for God's purposes. We're told that when the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon, that he is threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, this is an unusual scenario. Okay, you kind of have to get visual and engage this on uh, um, kind of an emotional level and, and feel and see what's going on in this scene. When people would gather wheat, they would take it to the threshing floor. And there they would, you know, fork it, throw it up in the air. They would let the chaff blow away and the wheat would fall back down. And this was, you know, out in a very large space, very public, so that the wind could blow through it and do the sifting. But he's not out on the threshing floor. He is... Hidden away, he is tucked away in the wine press where nobody else can see him. And there he is threshing the wheat. Which says at least two things to us. One, he doesn't have much wheat because he can do it in the wine press rather than out on the threshing floor. Because the Midianites have been there. And two, he's in hiding. He's having to be very low key. To not draw any attention to himself. And it's such a picture of so many church people today. Who rather than being out in a public way, doing the things that God's about in their life, are succumbing to cultural influence and pressure, scary things, and kind of hiding away. And it's very private and it's very quiet. And maybe if I leave them alone, they leave me alone. And because of this fearful, intimidating way of living, God says to his people in verse 10, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What was his command? What are they not obeying? His command was, don't fear. In other words, don't succumb to your fears. But courageously follow after me. Courageously do life with me. He says, but you have not obeyed me. You have succumbed to the stuff that's going on around you. And you are in fear and hiding. Then he comes to Gideon. Who is in fear and hiding. But he says to him. The Lord's with you. O mighty man of valor. And it's almost like Gideon said, you talking to me? Because A, I don't feel very favored by God right now. And B, I don't think I'm a mighty man of valor. But here you're looking at the difference between how our reality can be and our self-perception can be. And how God looks at us in light of his plans and purposes for us. God knew he had plans for Gideon that would cause Gideon 
Once he was dropped in the proverbial hot water and the tea began to escape from the tea bag, the valor would come out. The courage would come out if he would just obey, if he would just follow. So, what's going on with Gideon? What's going on with Israel in those days that's going on with us as well? They lacked courage to follow God, and we lack courage to follow God because in the first place, we're impressed by secularism rather than being impressed by God. Let me tell you, the the Midianites and Amorites were very impressive. They were godless. They didn't have any regard for the faith of the Israelites or the power of the God that the Israelites claimed was there for them. They snubbed their nose at that. They came in like a swarm of locusts. They did whatever they pleased. They plundered. They pillaged. They abused. They killed. Then they went out as they pleased. It's very impressive. Show of might. Arrogance. Power. And friends, that's our secular world today. It's pretty impressive. There's some pretty intelligent, genius-like voices out there that debunk this and debunk that about faith, ridicule, cajole. And there are a number of uh, pieces of legislation and ordinances and so on like that that are literally now daily being put into place to stifle, to squelch, to suppress the experience of God and the expression of God. It's pretty impressive. And we lack courage because we're often more impressed with what secularism is doing than what what we can see God is doing. A second reason that this courage thing is a challenge to us is because we're consumed by culture rather than being consumed by God. What brand of jeans do you wear? What brand of coffee do you drink? What brand of car do you drive? All these things define you. All these things speak to the world about who you are and what your worth is and what your values are. And we're consumed by that. And our consumption has an appetite that only grows. It does not get satisfied so that we want more and we want more and we want more. And we begin to give up more so we can have more of what can be consumed like that. When Gideon has this encounter with the angel of the Lord, and he says, you're favored. God's with you. You're a mighty man of valor. Here's what God's going to do with you. Here's his call on your life. Gideon immediately dashes into his house. He gathers up some food portions for a sacrifice. He runs back out of the house and he goes over to this little rock area and he arranges this offering of meat and cakes for God. And then he backs up and and more or less gestures that this is for the Lord. And this angel, this messenger of the Lord, takes his staff and reaches out and touches the end of it to the sacrifice. And it's all consumed just like that. And the angel disappears. 
Friends, my suggestion, my point about that is that we need to be consumed by God rather than by culture. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says that our lives are a living sacrifice that's offered to him daily. And daily when you put your life on the altar before him to allow him to touch, to allow him to consume you for his glory and his purposes. A third thing that impacts our lack of courage is that we get moved by pragmatism rather than by God. Now, this land that the Israelites came into to occupy had already been occupied. And the variety of Canaanites that lived in Canaan already had a whole system of deities and gods that they worshipped that were pretty uh, much related to the challenges of their land and of their world. They, they lived in a land and in a world that was agricultural by necessity. And if you didn't get the necessary rains for your crops, then you didn't have crops. If you didn't have crops, you didn't have food. You didn't have food. You weren't able to provide for your family and live. You weren't able to sustain. And so uh, the primary God for the Canaanites at this time is a God named Baal, B-A-A-L. And Baal was worshipped and honored and served in a variety of ways. There were various seasonal festivals in which uh, Baal was honored and uh, there were a variety of worship type experiences that people would engage in because Baal was perceived to be a fertility god, someone that could make the ground fertile as well as your family fertile. Then they worshipped him in fertile kinds of ways. There were temples with temple prostitutes with whom they would unite and that would be an act of worship. This is the world in which these Hebrews have moved into that God has given them said, I want you to be my people in this place. And rather than eradicate all of the Baalism that God told them to eradicate, they learn how to just get along, go along. And it wasn't long until they began to syncretize the worship and the following of Jehovah God with the worship and the following of Baal. So, they, you know, you keep the Baal seasonal festivals and have the Baal temple experiences. And you'd also keep the Jehovah God festivals and seasons and uh, the little temple experiences with Jehovah God, etc. It was all very pragmatic. If this is how you get the rains, if this is how you can get the crops, if this is how you can sustain life, uh, let's do that. And so the, the question kind of comes up, how can you so easily engage pragmatism and not be loyal to Jehovah God. How can that so easily happen? Because friends, it easily happens with us today. We easily engage in various pragmatic things. Uh, We say we follow Christ. We say that we are, are going to do what God wants us to do and be God's people. And when it comes time to work on our taxes, we'll cheat on taxes just like anybody else. I mean, everybody does it. And we'll work in our, our workplaces, uh, kind of fudging on the truth and not, you know, telling all that there is to know about a certain product or a service and things like that. And we'll cut corners and cut edges so that we can maximize gains and profits and what have you. Or we will give 60 or 70 hours of our life per week. 
with no time in our lives for God. It just all makes sense. It's just all pragmatic. And how can we do that? It's because we're talking about the difference between a religion and a relationship. See, for these ancient Hebrews, if the following of Jehovah God is just a religion, just something that you assent to a few beliefs and you engage in a few practices, then what difference does it make if you assent to a few more beliefs and engage in a few more practices? It doesn't make any difference if it all works. Friend, if this is not religion to you, if this is a relationship with the living God who has condescended and allowed us to know him, allowed us to even be close to him, and we begin to come to grips with his magnificent grace and mercy, unfathomable love. High, holy, eternal purposes. When you begin to know Him in that kind of way, you begin to be possessed by that, consumed by that. It begins to uh, enrapture your heart around Him so that you, you begin to get to a point where you wouldn't begin to think of compromising your relationship with God for some pragmatic piece of junk. And that's the difference. Well, let's get on to the end of the story. So, the enemy are the Midianites. He's going to raise up Gideon to fight the Midianites and defeat the Midianites. And so Gideon calls out to those other tribes that were surrounding them and says, Who's with me? Who's going to come and fight? And Gideon ends up getting 30,000 guys to fight the Midianites. Pretty impressive, isn't it? You know what God says? God says, You know what, Gideon? That's too many. If you guys won a war with that many uh, warriors, you'd take the credit for it. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to win this battle for you. So get rid of them. Just ask anybody that doesn't really want to fight and you want to go home, go home. And so Gideon goes out and says, who does not have a heart to fight today? You can go home. 20,000 took off. 20,000 right then and there. So he still has 10,000 left and God says, nah, that's still too many. And so through a process that is fascinating to read, read the story, he gets down to 300 guys, right? And he's going to take on this entire massive Midian force with 300 guys. And here's how they're going to do it. Each one is going to have a torch in his left hand and a sword in his right hand. And they're going to cover the torch with a clay pot. You ready? Let's go. He said, what in the world is that? 300 guys. He divides the 300 guys up into three groups. 100 over here, 100 over here, 100 over here. They've all got their torch with a clay pot and a sword ready for Gideon's command as they're going to assault the Midianites down in this valley. Let's pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 19. Love it. You need to circle this if it's not already circled in your Bible. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. In other words, there was a shift change in the guards in the Midian camp. 
uh, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled and tried to get away and they couldn't get away. Okay, you, you get that picture? Now, here's a couple of little military uh, subtleties that you'll appreciate. Usually in those days, an entire regiment would be led by a guy who has a torch and a trumpet. Okay? And when they were getting ready to fight, he would light his torch, blow his trumpet, and then his entire regiment would come behind him to fight. So when these 300 guys who are facing multiple thousands in the valley below, who are seasoned warrior, warrior types, when they all take their positions, Gideon gives the signal, they take off the clay pot, 300 torches are automatically seen. They crash these clay pots, which you can only imagine the noise that that would make echoing through the valley. And then 300 trumpets blow. In other words, the Midianites are convinced there are 300 regiments that are about to befall us. And they're all shouting. The, the chaos, the, the fearsomeness of that moment had to be overwhelming because the text says they began to take up their swords. And in the confusion of it all, thinking they were fighting enemies, they started killing each other. And Gideon's men just came down and finished it off. And the Lord won their battle. What's the battle you need to fight? What's the thing that God begins to stir in you? And you go, that's not right. Somebody ought to do something about that. What aspect of injustice? What part of the population who has no voice and no power grips and grabs your heart? What values? What purposes of God that secularism, pragmatism, culture snubs its nose at and says that doesn't matter? What's the battle you need to be fighting? Friends, there are battles around your marriage that need to be fought so that you get a victory in your marriage. There are battles around your family and around your children that need to be fought so that you're able to keep your children and don't lose them to secularism, to culture, to pragmatism. There are battles that need to be going on for any number of of purposes, causes, and values that God is at work at in us and around us all the time. I'm not going to define that for you. He is stirring you about that if you have a relationship with Him. What hinders your obedience? What makes you pause? 
to swallow hard and choke. To second guess. Gideon believed God could win, but he was prepared to fight regardless of the outcome. I'm telling you, to follow God means that he's going to take you into unknown circumstances, a la Abraham. And he is going to take you into fearsome conflicts, a la Gideon. And it will take courage, and it will take more courage than you have and more courage than I have to follow him into unknown circumstances and to follow him into fearsome conflicts and to be a man of God. To be a woman of God. And so I ask you, will you? Will you get to know God through Christ? Religion will not, cannot sustain you in the kinds of challenges we're talking about here. It's not worth it for religion. It is for a relationship with the living God who matters more than anything in the universe. Will you get to know that God through Christ? Will you begin to build your life upon that God in Christ? Where you order your life around Him, you don't fit Him into your life. And will you be courageous into the battles of secularism and culture and pragmatism? These are big, big questions. You can't answer that in this very moment. You can only incline your heart in one direction or the other. And if you incline your heart in the direction of God in light of what we're talking about today, then friend, you need to get around some others whose hearts are inclined toward God. You need to get aware and educated in the person of God and the plans of God. And you need to become a person of prayer that begins to pull down the power of God for you to do the life of God. I'm praying for you. Seriously. Let's pray. So, Father, for everyone hearing I ask for you to do what only you can do, and that is to pierce the heart. Penetrate with truth. Allow the seed of your word to find deep root in us and to grow forth in ways that change our character, change our appetites and desires, change our purpose in living. I ask for a glimpse of your glory to consume us.
In Jesus' name. Amen.